This is Footy Time, and I'm Daniel Andrews. So we've got another great show for you today, looking back at the 2012 AFL Grand Final, which many believe is one of the best Grand Finals of all time. Of course, it was Hawthorne versus Sydney in this epic Grand Final. Our regular segments also make an appearance, so we've got some Footy Time trivia for you to have a go at, as well as Frozen in Time, what will be the Frozen in Time moment from this Grand Final. And our new segments that appeared for the first time last week, Alternate History and True and False are both back as well. So we'll look at how things might have gone differently in the 2012 Grand Final in Alternate History and look at some of the interesting issues coming out of the game in True and False as well. I'm also happy to say that Danny will be joining us again, so he'll be able to provide some interesting insights and some banter, no doubt. Let's now have a look at the road through to the 2012 Grand Final for each of the teams. We'll start with Hawthorne. So what really stood out about the Hawks in this time was they had really good connection between their midfielders and their forwards, especially when things were clicking. There was no doubt that the forward line was Buddy Franklin-centric, who was their main target going forward. Other forwards, such as a young Gunston, Ruffhead and Bruce, did play second fiddle to Franklin. While the Hawks also had a solid backline, it did seem that they lacked one more large key defender, which left them a bit vulnerable when the opposition was able to get the ball moving quickly through the middle. So as minor premiers, Hawthorne faced Collingwood at the MCG in a qualifying final. It was Cloak and Cracker combining for 10 of Collingwood's 15 goals that managed to keep Collingwood in it for the majority of the day. But the Hawks just proved too good, themselves putting on a massive score of 2015-135 to run out with a big win of 38 points. For the Hawks, Franklin kicked four, which saw them straight through to the prelim final. This prelim too was at the MCG, this time against Adelaide, who'd finished second on the ladder. The Hawks seemed to be in control for much of the game, but with nothing to lose, Adelaide started bringing the ball through the middle, allowing them to get it quickly into their tall forwards, Taylor Walker and Kirk Tippett. As the Hawks' lead evaporated quickly, Hawks supporters were thinking not again after the 2011 prelim final against Collingwood. And although Hawthorne actually kicked less goals overall, they managed to hold on by five points, to see them through to the 2012 Grand Final. So after winning 35 of the possible 44 games across the regular season in 2011 and 2012, the Hawks had the chance to cap off their dominance with a Premiership Cup. But it was Sydney who stood in the Hawks' way. The Sydney Swans relied on a stingy backline to hold the opposition to a manageable score, and more often than not they actually did, conceding the least points of any team across the 2012 season. In many ways it was a blue-collar backline with players like Heath Grundy, Ted Richards and Nick Smith, but they were able to get the job done. Through the midfield and forward lines, Sydney had a very even spread of talent, and they made it work in that true blood style by playing selfless, uncompromising footy. Having finished third on the ladder, they actually had to travel to Adelaide for the first week of the finals. And in true Sydney style, they turned it into a low-scoring scrap, but it was Sydney who were able to break the game open in the second quarter by slamming on five goals to one. Underlining the strength of the Sydney backline, Adelaide only managed five goals for the whole day, allowing Sydney to run out 29-point winners and book their place in the prelim final. Their prelim final opponents would be the Collingwood Magpies at the SCG. In a similar story to the qualifying final, Sydney were able to hold Collingwood to just three goals in the first half, having kicked seven of their own. And with an even spread of goal kickers, Sydney was starting to look formidable as they booked their spot in the 2012 Grand Final with a 26-point win. So after waiting for so long for Premiership glory, up until the 2005 Grand Final, Sydney had another chance to add to their Premiership Cup cabinet. 
So we've got Danny back for another week as well. So welcome back, Danny. Hi, Daniel. It's great to be back. So let's uh, kick it off with a few of the pre-match talking points for the 2012 Grand Final. Obviously, the Hawks were one of the dominant teams through both the 2011 and 2012 season. So I thought we might just have a bit of a chat about sort of the need to for teams to actually cap off that dominance with premierships. Yeah, I think every team needs to, like, there's no point being a dominant side in the home and away season if you can't win a grand final. I guess history is littered with teams that win minor premierships but can't do it in September, isn't it? Well, Port Adelaide were known as the Chokers. Yeah, you don't get much for winning the minor premiership, unfortunately. No, but... And you could just see how dominant Hawthorne was this year just by their scoring. Their average points per game was 120 points. Yeah, they had a crazy percentage, didn't they? Wasn't it like 150% or something something like that? Yeah, so really, I guess it was on them to try and make the most of this dominance. It kind of brings to mind the around sort of the early 2000s, the Essendon side that was so dominant for three seasons. And in the end, they were able to win the one premiership. But, you know... Many would say they really should have won more during that time. Yes, and you could say the same thing about Collingwood throughout their history. Yeah, so I guess it just brings into focus how important it is to make the most of the dominance when you do get these chances. Absolutely. One nice thing I can say about Melbourne in in relation to this is uh, they've actually, I think, got a 70% winning record in grand finals, which I think is maybe the best conversion rate of any team. Oh, really? That's That's amazing. Yeah, well, they haven't really had to put that to the test for a while since uh, 2000, which didn't go so well. But anyway, it's all about winning grand finals, isn't it? No, no, one, no one remembers the ones they lost. To start the 2012 grand final, it was willing early, with both teams struggling to get a clear possession. Finally, the scrappy bit of play ended with Suckling finding the ball and was able to spear the pass to Franklin, who was able to mark the bullet on the second bite. In a sign of things to come, Buddy's shot missed to the near side. It was clear that neither team was giving an inch early, with masses of bodies around the ball, meaning it was pretty hard for both teams to generate any scoring chances. However, the Hawks got it deep inside 50, and from a stoppage about 15 metres out, an unmarked Alice found the ball and was able to get the ball on his boot to register the first goal. Up the other end, the ball squirted out of the contest towards Melchewski, who gathered, and to get a bit more space, he actually ran towards the boundary line to get a snap away. The kick was a high floater and had no right to go through, but with a bit of wind assistance, it went straight through the big sticks. The Hawks seemed a bit on edge early, and it was clear that Sydney were going to provide a difficult assignment on this day. Perhaps the weight of Hawkthorne's dominance over the past couple of years was weighing on them. More missed shots at goals weren't helping Hawthorne either, and when Silrioli dished off to Franklin on the run, he missed another and it seemed like Buddy's radar was definitely off. Hale and Ruffhead missed shots too, and even though Hawthorne had had almost all of the play, all they had on the board was 1-5-11. The tension began to grow as their supporters were asking, how many chances do you get in a grand final? They had to find a way to put some score on the board. From one deep Hawks entry, it was the speedy Lewis Jetta who gathered and took off, and it was up to Sirioli to try and chase him. As the pair sprinted along the wing, the crowd roared, Rioli couldn't keep up with him though, and Jetta was able to pass off after an epic run down the wing. Hawk supporters would have felt a whole lot better going into quarter time, after the Hawks were able to go bang-bang to finish the quarter, with Bruce and Gunston finding the goals. This gave the Hawks a 19-point lead, 
which seemed a little more representative of the way the game had been played. But really, the Hawks should have been another goal or two up based on general play. From the very first play of the second quarter, it was Josh Kennedy who marked on the 50. His long shot at goal did seem to hold up a little bit in the wind, but it went just far enough to evade Hawks defenders' hands on the line. Not long after, it was Sydney's Lewis Roberts-Thompson who was caught dead to rights in a tackle. But with no whistle from the umpire, the ball squirted out to Goods, who was able to gather and deliver to Jack at the top of the square. And just like that, the Sydney Swans had reduced the margin to just 7 points. Suddenly, the Swans had the game on their terms. Their pressure and attack on the ball meant that the Hawks were unable to take a single mark, which is the hallmark of their game, for the first 8 minutes of the second quarter. And when McVeigh gold, the margin was just a single point. The game had completely flipped on its head. In a beautiful bit of play coming out of defence, Nelcheski was able to find a 50-metre bullet to Hanabry, who marked in the centre circle. He then handed off to O'Keefe, who was able to find Richards all alone at the top of the 50, who made no mistake as the ball sailed through the goals to allow Sydney to hit the front. Next, it was the unheralded Mitch Morton who got in on the act. He was in exactly the right spot twice to get his patented right foot snaps online. The Swans had now slammed on six in a row and were on fire. Towards the end of the quarter, the Hawks had a chance to steady when Jordan Lewis was able to cleverly spot up Franklin about 30 metres out on an angle. The Hawks really, really needed this one. Unfortunately, the buddy kick was hooked badly and went out on the full. So from his four shots at goal, Franklin had managed just one goal in the first half. So it was the Swans who took a 16-point lead into half-time. Would their momentum continue into the third quarter? We'll have to wait and see. All right, so after that riveting first half, we've got some talking points. So for the first one, we've got the Swans catching fire in the second quarter. Six goals they were able to slam on. Yeah, they, they were great. They were just Hawks could not stop the Sydney at all. I think they needed to. I think they looked a bit shell-shocked in the first quarter and they just came out firing in the second. Yeah, the game kind of completely flipped on its head, didn't it? Like, Hawthorne had the majority of the play in the first quarter and perhaps didn't make the most of their dominance, but the script completely flipped in the second. I think the also the important thing that Sydney did was they made the most of their opportunities. Every time they had a shot at goal, um, they they made the most of it. For sure. Like they weren't getting heaps of entries, but like you said, they were being very efficient. So it kind of brings us to the next talking point, which is what changed? Two vastly different quarters, the first and the second. How did Sydney actually make this happen? Well, I, I think Sydney changed their game style slightly. They started to take, taking their game on. They started bouncing. Like when they got the ball, they ran a lot to try to break through the Hawthorne zone and then they kicked long. A number of players took off on the, from the defensive 50 and just ran. Yeah, I noticed that as well. The midfielders were getting back to support the defence, but once they did get the ball, they were making a point to really provide the option coming out and getting out into space. And then quite amazingly... The Swans' pressure was actually able to deny the Hawks even a single mark in the first eight minutes of the second quarter, which so that was just completely taking the Hawks' game away from them, really. Really is quite amazing what they did. I think Shaw was very important at this point, where the way he defended and then also rebounded very, very strongly. Because the Hawks were still getting quite a few entries, weren't they? But Sydney, Sydney were just bouncing it out way too easily. The Hawks just did not look effective at all in this quarter. All right, so the next thing we wanted to talk about here was uh, Jetta's run down the wing. So he actually managed to gather the ball deep in the Hawks 50 and just took off. And who was chasing him, Danny? 
Surioli. It was who everyone wanted to see run after each other. It was the two fastest players on the ground running like the wind after each other. Really wasn't really making much ground though, was he? <laughs> no, I, I think this really showed how fast Jeddah is. But I also think this is a big turning point in the game. Hawks went on to kick uh, a, a goal or two, but I feel like this was a huge momentum switch. What, what do you think about that moment made it a momentum switch or you just remember the game changing after that point? Um, I think that was the start of Sydney taking the game on. I feel like that was when they started to run and carry the ball. That was the first instinct that we saw that for the game. And from then on, it was sort of a Sydney game plan was to just run and carry and take chances, which was going against the, against the general game plan for the season. They decided to open the game up. Yeah, it's an interesting move against a side like Hawthorne. I guess we've kind of seen it a little bit the previous week in the prelim against Adelaide. When Adelaide did start to finally take the game on in the last quarter, that's when they could uh, open up the Hawks a bit. So perhaps they realised that that's where the Hawks were vulnerable. Once they got the chance to just open them up, they had to take it. Yes, especially with uh, the Hawks' game plan relying on such a good grid defence. So another big thing that happened in this first half was... uh, Adam Goods actually tore his posterior cruciate ligament. They were able to get him back out there, but he didn't look like he could move very well. No. He tried and he kicked an important goal in the game, but he just wasn't the same player after that moment. But I guess it does show you that even when a player gets injured, they just have to find a way to contribute. And I think, as we'll talk about a little bit later, Goods was able to have a pretty big impact on this game, even though he was on one leg. So looking at the Hawks forward line now, so the Hawks were a bit inaccurate in the first half as well, especially in that first quarter. And uh, Buddy Franklin had a bit to do with this. From his four shots, he had one goal, two, and one out on the full. Yes, no, he absolutely he seemed dominant on the ground and nobody could stop him. He was running up the ground, looking dominant, but he just could not convert, which really looked like it, it, it stopped Hawthorne from really being able to take away this game from Sydney. Yeah, it was interesting definitely in that first quarter where Hawthorne had almost all the play and they were getting plenty of shots at goal, but I think at one stage they were one goal five. So it was only those couple of late goals in that first quarter that actually gave them a lead that was kind of representative of the first quarter. Could have been a lot more though. Certainly could have been. All right, so that brings us to the end of our first half talking points. So we'll jump into some footy time trivia now. All right, let's get into some footy time trivia now. So test out that footy knowledge and see how many of these you can get right. So the first question is about the fact that Hawthorne managed to finish as minor premiers in 2012 season. So the question is, when was the next most recent time the Hawks finished a VFL-AFL season as minor premiers? Was it A, 2011, B, 2008, C, 1991, or D, 1989. What are we going to go for here? So you may need a little bit of a long memory to have got this one right, because the answer is D, 1989. So long time between drinks for Hawthorne in terms of minor premierships. So it was actually the 1989 season where they only lost three games during the regular season to finish on top of the ladder. And of course, they also went on to defeat Geelong in the famous 1989 Grand Final as well. Footy time trivia question number two. So this one is about the Franklin-centric Hawks of 2012. So 
throughout the season, they did seem to live and die a little bit by Franklin's accuracy. So a common theme in the games they did lose was that Franklin was quite inaccurate. So the question itself is, what was Franklin's conversion percentage in the 2012 season? So this is the ratio of goals to behinds. So was the conversion percentage A, 40%, B, 52%, C, 55%, or D, 60%? A little bit of time to think about this one. So the correct answer here was B, 52%. So with just over half of his set shots, he was able to get it through the big sticks. So he ended up actually kicking 69 goals and 64 behinds across all the games of the 2012 season and finals as well. So really each time he lined up for goal, it was roughly a 50% chance that he was going to kick it. In fact, this is actually Lance Franklin's worst conversion rate over his 15-year career. So I guess early on at Hawthorne, he was known as a bit of an inaccurate kick, but he did have some years where he was actually quite accurate for both Hawthorne and Sydney. Unfortunately for Hawthorne, 2012 wasn't one of them. Footy time trivia question number three. So across the 2012 season, it was actually Sydney who conceded the least number of points to their opposition. So the question here is, what was the average amount of points that Sydney conceded each week across the 2012 regular season? Was it A, 68 points, B, 70 points, C, 74 points, or D, 78 points? Have a crack at this one. So conceding just 1,629 points across the 22 games they played during the regular season, it was C, 74 points on average that they were conceding here. So obviously this is a very low number of points to be conceding and it was a big reason why they got as far as they did during the 2012 season. That really solid backline that that really didn't give up too many easy scores was a big part of what made Sydney so successful through the 2012 season. And through the finals as well, they didn't concede big scores, which enabled them to uh, get through to the grand final. Footy time trivia question number four. So this one's all about Alex Johnson. So I'm sure most of you know Alex Johnson, the promising key defender from Sydney, whose career was tragically crueled by a lot of knee injuries. He was playing, though, in both the 2011 and 2012 seasons before suffering these spate of knee injuries. So the question here is, How many games did Alex Johnson play after the 2012 Grand Final? Was it A, 0, B, 2, C, 5, or D, 8? Have a bit of a think about this one. So the correct answer here is actually B, 2. Both of these games actually came in the 2018 season, so he didn't actually play in any season between 2013 and 2017 due to all those ACL knee injuries that I was talking about. But he did manage to make it back for 2018 for a couple of games before unfortunately he suffered another knee injury, another ACL injury, and it was actually his good knee. So that really ended his career at that point as he was delisted at the end of the season by the Swans in 2018. And looking back at the 2012 Grand Final, He actually put in a great performance, especially for someone so young. So it was really a cruel blow that he wasn't able to play more football after that point. 
So that ends footy time trivia for another week. Hopefully you got a couple of those right. In any case, you'll have another chance in the next round of footy time trivia. So to recap, after a dominant second quarter, Sydney took a 16-point lead into the start of the second half. It was Sydney too who got the fast start, when Jetta was able to find some space on the wing before choosing to cut inboard to the teeth of 50, where two Swans players were all alone. Jack and Kennedy could have raffled it, but it was Kennedy who ran inside 50 and rammed home the goal to see the Swans lead out to a worrying 21 points. A hallmark of Sydney's game was their ability to push deep down into defence, especially their midfielders, but provide options on the way out with hard running to push forward. Their forwards were supporting as well, which meant more often than not, they had plenty of space when they were able to get it going back the other way inside 50. When the unheralded LRT was able to put through another, Sydney had kicked eight in a row and the Hawks hadn't scored for 42 minutes. Sydney's tackling pressure was causing all sorts of problems. Finally, a hail goal was able to break the drought for Hawthorne. After a soft ruck-free kick, he was able to put through the long set shot to reduce the margin back to 22 points. For one of the first times all day, it was Birchall finding a bit of space. As he was streaming out of defence, he launched a long ball to a one-on-one contest with Franklin, but he won it easily. And before you knew it, he was wheeling around on his left from 50 to register his second goal. All of a sudden, it seemed like Hawthorne were growing in confidence and the momentum had started to swing. The Hawks seemed to have found their run as well, and they were starting to find a bit more space. In a great bit of creative play on the wing from Franklin, he was able to get it to Gunston, who had a set shot on an angle from 35 out. The kick never deviated, and the Hawks were able to close the margin to just 8 points. A short time later, it was Franklin himself who marked at 60. Sensing the moment, he wasted no time, and launched a massive bomb towards the goals, where it carried the line of the unguarded goal square. It seemed to be raining Hawks goals now when Isaac Smith got on the end of a centre clearance to put through another. The Hawks seemed to have all the momentum now. But just when it was starting to look rosy for the Hawks, they completely shot themselves in the foot when Sam Mitchell was unable to get the ball back on the full to McVeigh on the wing, conceding a 50-metre penalty to put McVeigh within range. He coolly went back and slotted the goal to give the Swans the narrowest of leads at three-quarter time. It was all set up for a massive last quarter that would decide the 2012 Premier. For the fourth quarter, it seemed that the Swans were kicking to the good end, which on this day was the city end of the MCG, where most of the goals had been kicked. The win was a bit fluky, but perhaps there was a bit of assistance going that way. But it was the Hawks who got the fast start in the fourth, able to carry on that momentum they had in the third, with two quick goals to Bruce and Hale, giving them an 11-point lead. To continue this run of play, Franklin had another shot at goal. Agonisingly for Hawks supporters, he was unable to put it through. He now had just three goals from his eight shots on the day. The Hawks' clearance dominance was starting to become even more apparent, especially out of the centre, where they were winning almost all the clearances. This gave them plenty of chances inside of 50, but the resolute Sydney defence was clearing the ball time after time. Sydney had to make the most of the few opportunities they were getting now. And on one leg, Adam Goods was still putting his body on the line for his team. And he was able to do some really important things in this last quarter. He creatively delivered inside 50, where Sydney was able to control the ball, eventually getting it onto Hanabry, who from 35 put it through the middle to reduce the margin back to six points. 
Next, a scrubby Jude Bolton kick from the wing took a strange bounce, allowing Mitch Morton to compete well against two Hawks opponents. This gave Kieran Jack time to arrive to help out, but it was Clinton Young who got there first. Somehow he didn't take the ball with him though, as he overran it. Unbelievably, this left Jack to run into goal, and the scores were deadlocked at 78 apiece. A short time later, it was Goods again showing some magic. Off the side of the pack, the ball fell to Goods, and in a split second, he was able to get a wobbly kick towards goal. The kick just managed to evade the right-hand goalpost, and now the Swans had a 7-point lead. At the other end, it seemed that Franklin might have been losing a bit of confidence in his goal-kicking as he dished off to Gunston, rather than taking the shot himself. Surely from 25 out on a bit of an angle, Gunston was a sure thing, right? Unfortunately not. All he could manage was to hit the right-hand goalpost. And now the difference between the teams was just one straight kick, with little time remaining. Saul had a couple of flying snaps at goals out of packs, but they both went wide to register behinds. As time ticked down to under a minute, it was Jetta who marked on the 50. His kick fell short, with the umpire calling for a ball up. There was just 50 seconds left on the clock, with a stoppage deep inside the Swans 50. From the stoppage it was Hanabry who gathered, and he was able to dish off a sharp hand pass to Melcheski. With Hawks' opponents bearing down, Melcheski opted for a snap, and the high floater sailed through the middle of the goals to ensure that the 2012 Premiership Cup belonged to the Sydney Swans. In the end, it was the Swans who had kicked the last four goals of the game to claim a 10-point win and sink Hawthorne for another year. Okay, let's have a look now at my 3-2-1 of most influential players. So remember, this is influential, not necessarily best, but you know, some would argue that influential is best. So the Nomsmith medalist on this occasion was Ryan O'Keefe. So Ryan O'Keefe was definitely a four-quarter contributor on the day, but I felt that other players stood above him in terms of how influential they were to the result. To me, the most influential player was actually Lance Franklin. In many ways, the whole game actually revolved around Buddy. Whether he was kicking goals or points, or setting up his teammates with exquisite passes, the momentum of the game, in many ways, was living and dying on what Franklin was doing. Especially in the second half, Franklin just came into his own, and perhaps if he'd kicked more than three goals from his eight shots, the result may have been different. Two votes went to Dan Hanabry. So he ran hard all day to provide great option for Sydney coming through the middle, and was involved in some vital plays that led to some of Sydney's really important goals. One vote goes to Brad Sewell, so it was a prolific performance through the midfield, tough and uncompromising as always, and over 30 possessions. And he really did help establish the Hawks' stoppage dominance that they had really throughout the whole game. So we've heard about my 3-2-1 of most influential players. Danny, what was your thinking of the influential players on the ground for the 2012 Grand Final? I actually had Brad Sewell as my most influential player. With his 34 disposals, 6 score involvements, 19 cont- contested gets, 11 clearances, and 11 tackles as well. It was an amazing game, wasn't it? Probably a big part of why Hawthorne were able to ma- maintain that stoppage dominance throughout. None of their other midfielders really had standout games, so it was down to Sewell to do a bit of the heavy lifting there. Yeah, then I had Brian O'Keefe as my number two, and Lance Franklin as my number one, which I think if Lance F- Franklin had a kick straight, it would have been a different story. Well, yeah. It was a challenge for him this year, though. As we talked about in Footy Time Trivia, this was actually his most inaccurate season out of any of his 15 years. 52% conversion. You know what that means? Must be time for 
Frozen in time. Okay, what's going to be our frozen in time moment from the 2012 Grand Final? So I'm sure you'd agree that this game had many amazing moments, but it was really hard to go past this one. So with 50 seconds to go, it all comes down to this. A stoppage in Sydney's forward 50, perhaps the last play of the game. Somehow the ball finds its way to Hanabry in a tight contest, who quickly gets the handball away to Melcheski. Eager to get the ball away as quick as possible, he puts it on the boot with a snap over the shoulder that floats and floats towards goal. And now there is no doubt, Sydney are the 2012 Premiers. It's hard to go past when you've got a player that wins the game in the last minute. Did you have a different frozen in time moment from this game though? Let me know by email, footytime210 at gmail.com or post on the Facebook page. Keen to hear what you guys might have as your frozen in time moments from this game. Another great Facebook page that you guys should check out is the Real AFL Alliance. Plenty of great banter from a whole range of AFL club supporters. So what an amazing game that was. Nail-biting finish decided in the last 40 seconds. It's not often that you get a game decided in the last 40 seconds. Hey, Danny, especially a grand final. No. Uh, it truly is one of the better grand finals of the last 20 years. Do you reckon it's the best grand final you've ever seen live? I guess it's kind of hard for you to be objective about this, being a Hawthorne supporter and all. No, I think some of the Sydney West Coast grand finals were amazing as well. Yeah, I'd actually rank this up higher, like especially just watching it back. The level of skill in this game for a grand final was huge. Like Often in the grand final, you're getting you know two really good sides going up against each other, but they're actually able to take away the other side's game somewhat. And in this game, it just sort of seemed like Hawthorne and Sydney, especially at certain periods, were just going full bore at each other and giving it everything they had. No, I certainly see your point. Um, Sydney did manage to take away Hawthorne's scoring effectiveness. Yeah, so this brings back memories of the actual game because I think we're we're both at this game, weren't we, Danny? But I remember as a neutral supporter just really wanting Hawthorne to win this game. Like They'd had such a dominant... 2011 and 2012 stretch I just really thought they deserved to win this game obviously no team deserves to win a grand final but I was getting nervous for Hawthorne just you know in that first half where they just couldn't put the chances through I I can only imagine what it felt like as a Hawthorne supporter through that oh don't worry I think I lost a lot of hair this day I ripped out a lot it was very very frustrating well, I guess it's somewhat comforting to know that it does get a bit better from here for Hawthorne supporters, but, you know, it never makes up for the ones you lose, I'm guessing. No, but I think also the Hawthorne players learn a lot from this day. I think they learnt that composure is incredibly important in a grand final. So what about Adam Goods? We talked about him a little bit earlier, but it was really in the second half where he came into his own, especially in that last quarter. He did some really important things, getting it deep inside the 50 and even roving late off a pack to wobble through a goal. Yes, I, and I think that goal was also an incredibly important part. Well, I guess every goal in a grand final is important, but that one especially was it out of nowhere. He just burst through the pack and he got that goal. He yeah, just made something out of nothing. I guess it's hard to say who, how many people would have been able to do that, but right place at the right time, I suppose, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, also being a big body helped as well. So looking at the stats sheet, This game was a bit of an anomaly, actually. Hawthorne dominated almost all of the most important stats, really, especially the inside 50s and clearances. 
What did you have on this one, Danny? Uh, by the usual usual metrics, this is this is just a lay down Mazev that Hawthorne win this, wins this game. Uh, Hawthorne won the clearances by 23. They won the contested positions by 26. And the forward entries, they had 18 more than the Sydney Swans, which is just quite amazing to look at that and to see that they, they lost the game. Yeah, I remember at the time just watching this, thinking how could the Swans be competing uh, with so few inside 50s? It was just amazing. They were starting almost all their plays from the back line. They weren't really winning clearances and they weren't really well, either centre clearances or around the ground. So they were relying on just that transition all the way down the ground to get their goals. Uh, to look at that point of yours a bit more, Sydney had they had 46 rebounds and they had to Hawthorne's 26 rebounds out of the defensive 50. I think another stat that underlies the difference between the teams is the goals per inside 50. So for Hawthorne, it was 5.5 inside 50s for one goal. And for Sydney, it was almost half that, only three inside 50s per goal. And I guess the accuracy of 14 goals, seven also helped. That's just an amazing stat. Yeah, but you could also look at how hard Sydney went this game by by the sheer tackles they did compared to Hawthorne. They did 110 tackles to Hawthorne's 84, which just shows you how, how ferocious they were around the contested ball. They might not have been getting it, but they were going in hard and making it very hard for Hawthorne to be effective. So I think all this added together just shows that, firstly, how unlikely it was that Sydney could actually win this game. But I don't think there was any other team that could have actually won the game with this set of stats that we have in front of us here. Only Sydney could have done this. And that defense was resolute all day under intense pressure, obviously. It's time now for the true and false. So let's have a look at some of the threads from the 2012 Grand Final. Okay, Daniel, um, do you think Franklin's inaccuracy in front of goals cost the Hawks the 2012 Grand Final? This is a hard one. I would have to say this is more true than false, yes. Because the simple fact is, if Franklin got more than his three goals from his eight shots, I think the Hawks win this game. But I think it is a little bit, bit harsh on Franklin as well, because even though he didn't convert that many of his shots, he still had a fantastic game. What are your thoughts on this one, Danny? I think if he converted, it would have been a different story, but I think that it goes deeper than that as well. Danny, to you, the Swans stole the 2012 Premiership. Uh, I think that's true. I think there's so many stats that say Hawks should win this game. Just Hawks having 26 shots on goals, they should have won this game. Yeah, that is plenty of shots in a grand final. I guess it brings us back to that first quarter where they had plenty of shots and just weren't able to put it on the board. Okay, Daniel. The 2012 grand final is one of the top three grand finals of all time. I would say this is true, at least from my standpoint. I haven't seen that many grand finals, I suppose, compared to some people. I've seen them all from, I think, 96 onwards. And uh, for me, this is definitely up near the top, especially just in terms of the skill level that I talked about earlier, momentum swings, close finish. It had everything. As far as a neutral supporter goes, this is almost the perfect game for me. What about you, Danny? Maybe not top three, but it certainly was a great one. It did have everything. What's at least one game you'd have above this one then, if it's not top three? I think the 2016 Grand Final, it just purely because it was a fairy tale and it had the momentum swings and it had the underdog being the hero and the, the one player standing up for the, for, the, for the moment 
I think that was one of the great ones. For sure, it was one of the great ones. But I stand by my original point that I think this level of skill was actually higher in this game. I suppose it just comes down to what you actually like in your grand finals. Do you want the fairy tale or do you want the game? (laughs) I want the game. Your turn again, Danny. The wind had a big impact on the 2012 grand final. I think this is false, Daniel. I I don't think the wind had a huge impact on the game. I think both teams proved that they could score at both ends. I think maybe kicking effectiveness wasn't at its highest, but I don't think the wind had a huge outcome on this game. Yeah, I agree with you there, Danny. False for me. There was a lot of talk about it on the coverage, about how the scoring end was the city end and all the goals were being kicked up that end. But especially in that last quarter, it didn't seem to be an issue. And as we know, the wind just swells around the MCG. So it's a bit fluky. I don't think you can ever really say there's a true wind advantage at the MCG. Last question, Daniel. The 2012, the Hawks' defence was unreliable when the opposition moved the ball quickly. What are your thoughts on this? Limited sample size looking back at only a few games, but at least through the finals, I would say this is true. In both the grand final and the prelim that I had a look at here, they were opened up by quick ball movement where the opposition were able to move it through the centre. And I think the Hawks did just lack one more big defender to actually limit the scoring off these quick entries. I I think Clarko agreed with you, and that's when they went out and got Bryant Lake. Something that we haven't touched on yet, really, which we probably should have, was Clarkson's want to uh, change the forward structure a little bit. I suppose you could say that the Hawks were a bit, a little bit too reliant on Franklin during 2012, and uh, I guess Clarkson didn't want to get beaten the same way twice if the Hawks could get back there in 2013. So they were pretty keen to share the load a little bit, bringing other players into the game a bit more like Gunston, Bruce, and Roughhead wasn't all going to be about Franklin anymore. Um, I think he did that more thinking ahead to 2014. I think it was more the threat of free agency and thinking what life needed to be um, without Franklin than to rely on him during the 2013 season. Even through that whole 2013-2014 period, there was this expectation that you know Franklin probably wasn't going to be there forever, so needed to plan for life after Franklin maybe. Yes, I think if you have the most dominant player in the competition, you utilise him. I don't think you pl- you plan in a game style that doesn't utilise him. Isn't that almost what they did in 2013, though? They, they, they did push him up the ground a lot. They didn't utilise him probably to his full capability. But I think if he had have signed and played another seven years at Hawthorne, they might have played a different game style too. So now we're going to jump into alternate history. So this is the part of the podcast where we try and come up with a way that the losing team, in this case Hawthorne, could have actually won the grand final. So, Danny, let's get you to give us your version of uh, how Hawthorne actually could have won this game. I felt that there was one big turning point in this game, and that was when Jeddah beat Cyril Rioli down the wing. So I think the game changes if Cyril Rioli tackles uh, Jeddah, gets the ball off him, kicks into the Hawthorne 50 line, and they get a goal straight away. I think that changes the whole momentum of the game. It gives Hawthorne uh, an extra goal lead going into the, the fir- after the first quarter, and it stops uh, Sydney thinking about taking the game on and thinking of trying to win it in a different way. They believe they couldn't win with uh, running the ball out of the defensive 50. They had no other way to win. 
Uh, thanks for that, Danny. Interesting that you've chosen sort of a single moment to change there, almost taking a page out of my playbook from last week. And I, I think I've actually done the reverse. I've gone more to the way you did it last week. So let's uh, let's have a look at mine. For me, it starts with the Hawks making the most of their first quarter dominance. So setting the tone for the game and gaining in confidence. So I really felt like the Hawks were actually quite jittery early. So if we can get rid of that by getting some conversion going in the first quarter, six goals, three in that first quarter to take a 28-point lead into quarter time, then I feel like they're well on their way. So after being settled in that first quarter, they're able to get their running game going, getting that connection between their midfielders and their forwards a little bit better, and everything's just sort of coming up Hawthorne from this point. So even though Sydney do come back a bit in that second quarter, Hawthorne are better able to hold them because now they've got that confidence going and their game's up and running. And this basically allows them in that third quarter then to catch fire. So on the back of Franklin, who's roaming up to the wings and finding it inside 50, they're actually able to take a 30-point lead into the last quarter, which turns out to be unassailable, and they go on to win the grand final by 20 points. And in this version, Franklin wins the Norm Smith medal as the most influential player on the ground. Yes, yeah, so, so the one thing you really give the Hawks overall is composure. Absolutely, Danny. And I feel like the game completely changes if they have more confidence after that first quarter. Okay, so now that we've heard those two versions of alternate history for how Hawthorne could have won the grand final, we can actually see which version we liked better. So who gets the votes here? Does uh, my composure that I give the Hawks in the first quarter, allowing them to uh, go on and win the game, win the day? Or is it Sydney being stymied by not being able to get that run going out of halfback? What's your vote going to go for, Danny? I actually, I'm going with you this week, Daniel. I like the uh, idea of Hawthorne having more composure in front of goals, and I think they win the game. Thanks for that one, Danny. Good to see that you can take my side occasionally. <laughs> uh, I, I will also go with mine. I think it was really clear in this game that, you know, Hawthorne were generating a lot of the play, and if they just had a little bit more composure, they probably would have won. So thanks again for listening to Footy Time. Hope you've had as much fun as we have dissecting the 2012 Grand Final. So be sure to tune back in next time for more Footy Time.